I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So here we are at the beginning of a new year. We just uh, came through the month of Tishrei, which is a month that is as full of mitzvot as as a pomegranate. We have, you know, so many chagim in that month. We have Rosh Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the days of awe, the days of awesomeness. And we end the whole period with Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, Simchas Torah. And of course, we start beginning to read the Torah over again from the beginning. And I just think it's an amazing thing that the Torah begins with the letter bet, an enlarged letter bet. And basically that letter bet is telling us to go forward, right? We can't go backwards through the bet. We can't go up. We can't go down. We can just go forward. And that's really the message of life and the message of Judaism That no matter what struggles, no matter what difficulties, we always keep on stepping one step at a time forward into the future with hope, with anticipation of a better world, and always with knowledge that Hashem is walking with us and that he has a master plan, not only for the world itself, but for each one of us. You know, Einstein said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Well, the Torah begins with a lot of people, beginning of the world, and a lot of people making a lot of mistakes. But it's interesting that in the second parak in Bereshit, it says, Ela todos hashamayim v'ha'aretz v'hibaram. These are the products of the heaven and earth when they were created. Um, When they were created on the day that Hashem God made earth and heaven. Now, if you look at that Pasuk, the the word Behibaram is a very interesting word. The letter He in that word is printed smaller. And in in the translation, it says when they were created. But another way of reading it, according to the rabbis, is when the letter He was created. There's an idea that Hashem created the world with two letters, Yud and He, which is one of his names. Yud, he created Olam Haba, and He, he created Olam Hazah. And the letter He, for all of you, you know what the letter hey looks like. One second. Make a letter hey for those of you who may not. My pen works. Can you, can you see that? Too bright. Can you see that hey? Or you, no, but you can't see it. I can't see it. You can see it now, right? Anybody there? Yes. Okay. 
Anyway, the letter Hey, it says God created the world with the letter Hey. Now the letter Hey represents the idea of teshuva, that we could make a mistake, we could distance ourselves from God and so to speak, fall through the bottom, sorry, the bottom of the letter Hey. But God created the world with, before the world was created, he created the idea of teshuva, that a human being is never beyond a hope, that a human being can always return to his better self, to his essence, to God. And that's why he has to travel up here. It takes some effort to do that. He has to travel up here, but the hay has a little opening here through which a human being can come back. You can't see it. Okay, that little opening up at the top of the hay. So there's a play on that word, that when Hashem created the world, he created it with the hay in mind. With the letter hay is one way of reading it. As easy as it is to say the letter hay, which is just expelling breath, that's how easy it was for Hashem, who is all-powerful, to create this world. Just to give us a small idea of the power of Hashem, and the incredible distance between us and Him. But also, again, God created the world, world with the letter Hey to indicate that human beings, no matter how far they fall, right? We begin the Chumash with the story of Adam and Chava, with mankind being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Because even though God had given them every tree in the garden to eat from, that one tree that God forbids them to eat from, we all know the story, they can't help themselves. And of course, forbidden waters are sweeter. And they eat from the tree and death comes into the world and human beings begin the process of, so to speak, getting back to the garden, which is what process we've been in ever since. Um, and then, of course, we have the story of Cain and Havel, two brothers, the first fat fratricide, two brothers, one who kills the other out of jealousy, out of feelings of low self-esteem. God says to him, if you would just pick yourself up and make yourself better, then this kind of thing won't happen. And otherwise, if you don't, sin will always crouch at the door. It will always be waiting for you. It's up to you to pick yourself up and make yourself better. And of course, this week's Parsha is the Parsha of Noah. And you know, the point of this class is not necessarily to get deeply into the parshas, though we are going to use them to understand the four elements of living an empowered life. Um, but it's something that I'm going to save for you for next week. And because it's Rosh Chodesh today, Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, I want to speak today about the month of Cheshvan and what we can learn from this month. And how we can go forward with the bet. Again, the letter bet begins the Chumash, Reishi, to tell us that we have to move forward one step at a time, no matter where we are, 
whether, you know, there are challenges and struggles and obstacles in our life or whether it looks like smooth sailing ahead. We all know that life is full of the twists and turns and the Torah, the Ezra Hashem and its guidance and its wisdom is what helps us navigate this difficult world. Okay, so our new month is the month of Cheshvan. And of course, it's a bit of a denouement, if you like, from the last month, which was again, so busy with mitzvot. And of course, a month that we are working very um, directly on trying to make resolutions and become the people that we want to become to actualize ourselves in certain areas where we remain unactualized, where we can go further. And we, you know, just like New Year's resolutions of the secular calendar, it's very well known that human beings have a lot of great intentions and make a lot of resolutions at this time. But coming into Cheshvan is really where you separate the men from the boys, you know, in terms of really... um, sticking to those resolutions and making them part of yourself and using the energy and the power of the month of Tishrei that we just went through to take us through these months ahead and actualize that which we may have felt a stirring of our greater potential during this time, right? We came to Hashem and Shul. We asked for forgiveness to Hashem, to other people around us. We're a clean slate. And we have to believe that we're a clean slate. And we have this ability to start over. Judaism is full of beginnings, right? Whether it's every single Shabbat, where we begin the week again, whether it's a new year, a new month, a new week, a new day. Every single day we begin with Moda'ani, Lefanecha, Thank you, Hashem, for this very new day, this this opportunity to wake up. And Rabbah Emunatecha, great is your belief in me. The fact that you woke me up today means that you believe in my ability to make good on my promises, to follow through with some of my resolutions. And that's what this month of Cheshvan is all about or or somewhat about. Okay, so just in general, Kabbalah discusses that every single month has a unique energy and every month has a new intention. There are certain attributes and struggles contained in every single month. Now, in the greater world of astrology, there's a lot of emphasis on zodiac signs. Zodiac signs, if you've ever been to Israel and you've gone to different synagogues, ancient synagogues, sometimes they'll show you the uh, floor of the synagogue, and it will actually have the zodiac sign. So zodiac signs is not something that is anathema to Judaism, but it's important to understand it in its proper context. So Kabbalah talks about the zodiac, and it calls it mazalot, right? I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. It's interesting that we Jews you know, whenever there's a happy event, we wish each other mazel tov. And we think of it, you know, in English, we think we're just saying congratulations, right? But mazal actually comes from the word nozel, which means to flow. 
which is interesting because in English, the word knows, right? Which flows sometimes more than we want in the season. Okay. <laughs> it actually means mazal tov, that you should have a good flow, right? That the flow, the energy that's coming down from above should be favorable. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, just go like that. Okay. All right. So even though it's very important to realize that we say about the Jewish people that we are above the mazalot, we are above the stars. So we do not believe in fate. We do not believe in destiny. We believe in something that is very, very clear at the beginning of Chumash Bereshis, which is Bechira Chofshis, free will, that human beings have the ability to choose. And the Jewish people have an extra added ability in terms of our choices really creating our destiny. Okay, that's a very complicated topic. But the idea is, is that though the nations of the world may live under the stars and be very much influenced by the constellations, we Jewish people have an ability to rise above the stars. And basically, as much as there may be a certain amount of destiny, who your parents are, what your character traits may be, we believe that a person has the ability to channel everything for good or for bad. And it's in our hands. So it's only dim-witted people, says the Rambam, that a human being does not have free will. I'll just read to you from the Rambam, just so we hear it from the horse's mouth, as they say. <clears throat> Freedom of choice is granted to all men. If a person wants to follow the path of virtue, becoming a tzaddik, that is his choice. Similarly, he can choose to follow the road of evil, becoming wicked. When Adam sinned, so to speak, what happened is that Man became able to choose between good and evil, and good and evil was not no longer outside of him, but now had entered him, which makes it much more difficult for us to be able to distinguish at times between right and wrong and between good and bad. Now, there's an idea that Adam wanted to test himself, Adam and Chava, that they ate purposefully because the snake said to them, when you eat from this tree, you'll become not just like God, but as God himself. And for them, that was a huge Yetzirah, because they already understood things on a level that we can't understand. They could see from one end of the world to the other, as it says, to describe their knowledge and wisdom. But they had a Yetzirah to want to be even more than that. And they felt that by bringing good and evil inside of them and then overcoming evil, that would make them even greater. But that, again, is another topic for another time. But basically, um, back to the Rambam. He says, do not believe the notion held by fools and by most dim-witted Jews, he says, that God decides at birth whether a person will be righteous or wicked. This is not true. Each person has the potential to become a tzaddik like Moshe Rabbeinu 
or an evildoer like Yerovam, the evil king who sinned and made others sin. He may acquire wisdom or foolishness, be compassionate or ruthless, miserly or generous, or have any other character trait. There is no one that compels, persuades, or decrees which path he must choose. He, on his own accord, freely chooses the road he wants to follow. The principle of freedom of choice is a basic concept and a pillar on which the entire Torah and mitzvot rest. As it says in Devarim, see, I have set before you today a free choice between life and good on the one side and death and evil on the other. I'm placing before you today a blessing and a curse, implying that the choice is up to you. A person can do whatever he wants, whether good or evil. Therefore, when the Jews accepted the Torah, God pleaded with them to remain righteous, saying, if only their hearts would always remain like this. This implies, again, that God does not force a person to do either good or bad. It is his decision. Yeah, I just think this is a very important principle to know as a axiom, as a foundational idea in Judaism, that we are completely in control of the choices that we make. Doesn't mean that there is not a struggle involved and that we aren't rewarded for overcoming that struggle. God created the Yetzer Hatov, but he also created the Yetzer Hara. It says about the Yetzer Hara in Bereshit, God calls the Yetzer Hara Tov Me'od, very good. Now, why would he do this? Why would he call the Yetzer Hara Tov Me'od? But the idea is, again, without a Yetzer Hara, the choices that we make wouldn't mean anything. They wouldn't be valuable. Every time we overcome our desire to go with our desires, as opposed to go with our Seichel, our mind, our intelligence, our knowledge of what Hashem wants from us, we, we engage in that struggle, that battle. And this is a battle that doesn't end until the end of our lives. It's always refining itself and moving up. And this is what we call spiritual growth, right? At first, it starts with a Big Mac attack if you're trying to you know, keep a little more kosher. And then you overcome that and you move up to the next level. But it's a, it's a free choice point that is always moving. And the battlefield is, is always, it's part of being alive. So this is what spiritual growth is. And why God calls uh, the uh, Yetzir Hara Tov Me'od. Because it's only when we overcome our inclination to do wrong that we build ourselves, that we become, so to speak, more godlike, more made in the image of God. Because human beings are the only creation that has this ability to choose. Animals don't choose. They do what feels right, what's instinct. When we behave like animals, when we don't choose, when we just go with the flow, so to speak, we exercise our animal side. A human being is composed of two parts, right? A body and a soul, but also an animal soul, an animal-like self which is no different than, you know, an intelligent ape. 
which is why, you know, the anthropologists would like us to believe that that's all we are. And it's interesting, there's even an idea or a source that says God made us look like monkeys. God made monkeys look like us, if you like, because it's telling us you have a choice. You can just be a, you know, a, an ennobled monkey, if you like, or you could just be a monkey, um, you know, who acts on his urges. Or you can be B'Tselem Elohim. You can be a human being made in the image of God who chooses, who is like the angel when he chooses to, to um, be guided by his soul, by his higher self. Okay, I went off topic a little bit because I always like to come back to foundational ideas just for us to get ourselves centered and understand what living a Torah life and a spiritual life is all about. It's not easy. It's not simple. But it's getting into the game, starting small and realizing that as you refine yourself, the battle just becomes more and more refined. But it doesn't end till the day we take our last breath. But it's only this is the way Hashem rewards us, right? If we were just given everything without any kind of effort, then that's what we call the bread of shame, eating the bread of shame. It's only when we put effort into something and then we see the fruits of our efforts that we get true enjoyment from it and that we truly deserve whatever rewards and pleasures come from the work that's involved. Okay, back to the month of Cheshvan and the idea that Jews are above the stars, right? I just want to tell you the source in the Torah that you know, God comes to Abraham and he tells him, you're going to have a son. And you're, you, you know, and, and it says, he, he says to Abraham, come outside and look up at the stars. As many as the stars are up in the sky, that's how many progeny are going to come from you. Now, of course, this was at a time when Abraham was getting older and he hadn't even had one child yet. And Sarah, the Torah teaches us, was barren, was unable to have children. So what God is telling Abraham here is look up at the stars, meaning realize that your people and what's going to happen to you, even the fact that you have this one son, Yitzchak, is going to be above the stars. It's going to be part of the miraculous world. It's not something that happens under the stars, fated, decreed by the mechanisms that I put into the world in terms of you know, how things are supposed to run. You and your people will be above that, able to go beyond that which is natural and logical. Okay. So what are we supposed to tap into in this month of Cheshvan? What's our focus? So there's different ways that we can understand this month. And one is, of course, back to the zodiac sign. For those of you who know, the zodiac sign for this month is the scorpion. Okay, interesting. Now, another way that we can understand what this month is about is by analyzing the name of the month. The name of this month is Cheshvan, and it's also called Mar Cheshvan, which is interesting because that means the bitter month of Cheshvan. Okay, now we can say, you know, the weather changes. We have to put on our raincoats. We all get sore throats and coughs. 
So part of the bitterness of this month, literally, is the fact that the weather is changing. It's the rainy season. And um, uh, the, the name itself will tell us a lot about what the intention for this month should be. Okay, another thing, the names of the month are not mentioned in the Torah. The names of the Hebrew months, interestingly, come to us from Babel, from Babylon. I don't even know if their source is Jewish. I'm not sure. Um, but these months are not mentioned in the Torah itself. And yet we keep these names of these months because there are certain allusions and hints in the name of the month to what we can learn from this month and what we're supposed to glean from how we approach this month and every other month. Another thing that we look at is there are 12 tribes in Israel and each of the tribes corresponds to a different month. And it's no coincidence which month gets which tribe. Okay. So let's begin with that. So what's the personality and mission of the tribe that is associated with Cheshvan? And how does it connect to this month? So the truth is, is there's actually 13 tribes. Okay. If you read in the Torah, Yosef, who would have been the 12th of the 12 sons of Yaakov, Yaakov on his deathbed makes Yosef's two sons, Ephraim and Menashe, into two tribes. So we actually have 13 tribes. Okay. But what happens is the tribe of Levi is not considered to be one of the tribes, so to speak. Um, so we take away the tribe of Levi because Levi becomes part of the inner circle of uh, Jewish people like the Kohanim who surround the tabernacle. And so we stick to the number 12 and remove Levi and count Yosef <clears throat> as two different tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, so which tribe is Heshvan? <clears throat> Heshvan is the tribe of Menashe. Menashe was Yosef's son. Yosef named Menashe um, <clears throat> that name um, for a reason. Okay, we're going to talk, talk about that uh, in a few minutes. Now, one other thing that we can look at to really understand what the month is about is certain events in the Torah that happen at that time of year. Because as we know, any event that happens in a certain month, on a certain day, in terms of Jewish thought and the Jewish concept of time, the spiritual energies of that event are released into the world every year at that time. And we're able to tap into them for good or for negative. So we're going to see very interestingly how this month of Heshvan coincides, of course, with the story of Noah, with the waters of Noah. And actually in the Torah itself, in Parshas Noah, it talks about the 17th day of the second month, which we begin the month of the year beginning with Tishrei, the month that just passed. Tishrei, Heshvan, 
is the month we're in now. The flood begins on the 17th of Cheshvan, and it ends a year later on the same day. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. One more way in which we can understand the month is every month corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and a human attribute that's connected to it. So back to the overall feeling of the month of Cheshvan. And this month where the sages added on the idea of Mar Cheshvan from the word Maror, right? Remember the Maror Pesach time? Mar Cheshvan, the bitter month of Cheshvan. So there are some months in Judaism that are prone to negativity. These are the months that have fast days in them. For example, Av, the ninth of Av, the eleventh uh, of Teves, another month that's prone to negativity, and Tammuz, which we also have a fast day in, the day that Moshe broke the Lucho, broke the tablets, the 17th of Tammuz. Now, Cheshvan doesn't have a fast day, so why do we call it bitter? So as we said, Tishrei, which we just came from, is beautiful month, it's inspiring month, it's the days of awe, it has so many holidays, so many mitzvot that we're busy with. And, you know, when we come to this month, we kind of, on the one hand, we're kind of happy to go back into the regular life. But on the other hand, we've been picked up to this very high, high. And now we're sort of being put back down into real life. And the question that people ask themselves is, where will my inspiration come from? Mar Cheshvan could simply be called bitter because there's no holidays in this month. There's nothing to rejuvenate us, if you like. So where will my inspiration come from except for Devorah Vale or, you know, where am I going to get my inspiration? So this is the bitterness of this month. <clears throat> the leaving Tishrei behind and coming into this month. But there's actually the bitterness comes from the zodiac sign of the month, which is a scorpion, right? I don't think anybody here or anybody's kid ever asked for a pet scorpion, right? We associate the idea of a scorpion with negativity, with danger, with being poisonous, perhaps life-threatening. <clears throat> and again, when it comes to the events that happen in the Torah at this time, as I mentioned, this is the Shabbos, which seems to coincide with Cheshvan. And actually Cheshvan, as I said, is mentioned as the beginning of the flood, second, day, second month on the 17th day, where we have this flood that destroys the entire world. Except for Noah and his family, God reconsiders having made man, as we know at the end of Parshish Parashis. He mourns the loss of the fact that the world did not turn out the way that he expected it to go. And at the end of last week's Parsha, Hashem says, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth, from man to animal, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I've reconsidered having made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Hashem. So we know that except for Noah and his immediate family, Hashem decides to begin the world again. And the waters are compared to a mikvah, 
just like a mikvah cleanses and purifies and brings spiritual health back to a person, so too God, so to speak, needed to cleanse and purify his world with water, which is cleansing. But we know that water, on the one hand, can be a positive force, but can also be an extremely destructive and negative force. So you have both of these connotations. On the one hand, destruction. On the other hand, rebirth, hope that Noah and his children are going to come back to the purpose of why God created the world. Not creating the world with perfect people, but rather human beings who are free to choose, who are independent, so to speak, who are godlike in the tremendous power that they have to either build or destroy, to further God's plan in the world or to impede it over and over again. And this is the story of mankind and the story of the Jewish people. <clears throat> so the element of, okay, so obviously the mabul was a painful event, the mabul, the flood. And so this is a bitter month. This month is also called Chodesh Bul. And Bul, Beit Vav Lamed, comes from the word mabul, which is the flood, right? Mabul is flood. It's interesting that the other story in this week's Parsha is the story of the Tower of Babel, right? Babel, which also has the letters Bet Lamed in it, Bul, which mean confusion, chaos, okay? The entire Parsha is speaking of a time when the world was so confused and chaotic, basically because of the immorality that the world had sunk to, the Hamas, uh, the robbery, the inability for human beings to see each other as worthy of respect, of, of <clears throat> the kind of terrible relationships that went on in those days. And then finally, the Parsha ends with the people uniting after the flood, but they unite in order to build a tower against God. And so the word bull, which means confusion, um, is very symbolic of not only the mabul, the flood, which was brought about by the confusion and chaos of the world, but again, back to the human beings coming back to the Tower of Babel, right? What happens is God doesn't destroy uh, human beings when they build this tower to, so to speak, fight God or get rid of God, which seems, you know... Uh, silly and foolish, but they actually felt they could do such a thing. Um, what God says is the fact that they're unified, which they were not during before the flood, makes me happy. Even if they're unified for no good, it's not worthy of destruction, because at least they're unified. So what God does, rather, is he confuses their language, right? The word bavel, or Babel is where the English word babbling comes from, to babble, right? He takes all of the people who spoke one language and he confuses them by creating 70 languages. And now they can no longer work together in unity to build this tower against God. So this is just an interesting idea that 
you know, the word Mabul and the word Bavel have the same letters, Bul, which this month is also called by, which again means confusion and chaos. Now, each month also corresponds to one of the four core elements, which is what we're going to talk about in our next class um, of the world, that the world was created with. And we've talked about this in other classes of mine, right? If we look at the creation story, if we go back to the very beginning of Bereshi, right? In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and the earth is unformed and void. There's a spirit of God that's hovering upon the water and God says, let there be light. And this whole description of the beginning of creation, one of the things that we derive from it is that God creates the world with four elements, earth, water, wind, and fire. And these are elements that recur over and over again throughout the Torah. And in order for us to understand not only the olam gadol, the world outside of us, and those four elements that it's composed of, but we need to understand that each one of us is an olam katan. Each one of us is composed of those four elements. And we interface with the world not only through what we do externally in the world, but also in terms of how we work on ourselves internally with our olam katan, with the small world that each one of us is a microcosm of the larger world out there. You know, it's no coincidence that the Torah, the Talmud teaches that if you save one life, it's as if you saved the entire world. And if you destroy one life, it's as if you destroy the entire world. God creates the world with one human being, Adam. Now, he could have begun with a family, right? God can do anything. He could have populated a whole country. But the message is that each human being is so important. And what you need to accomplish in your lifetime is something that nobody before you, nobody at present, and nobody in the future will be able to do, will be able to accomplish. And each one of us possesses those four elements of earth, earth, wind, and fire. I want to say it in that order. Earth, water, wind, and fire. If anybody knew that uh, music group, earth, wind, and fire, one of my favorites. Um, <clears throat> each one of us had those elements inside of us. Okay, so just to keep going with the month. So it's no surprise that the element of Cheshvan is, guess what? Water, Right? It goes together with the scorpion, with the mabu, with the story that we're reading in the Torah. And not just that, we dovened for rain. At the end of Shemini Atzeres, we include in our prayers that God should give rain, because this is the rainy season in Israel. And we know that Israel depends on rain for its survival. That Israel is one of the only countries in the world that supply of water is completely dependent on God, so to speak. And God made it this way, right? <clears throat> the concern for every Israeli is how high is the Kinneret every single year? Do we have enough water? And we look to Hashem to provide us that water. 
as opposed to the Nile River in Egypt, right, which is always compared to Israel as being this incredibly prosperous land where the Nile River just overflows every year naturally and waters the land. Okay, but Israel, this is the rainy season. We've been asking for Gishmei Bracha in our prayers. And of course, we now include in Shemona Esrei, Mashiv HaRuach Umorid HaGeshem, that God makes the wind blow and brings the rain. <clears throat> now, whether a month is good or bad is in our hands, as we said. But what is this month prone to? That's the question. So with this month, we're initially hit with bitterness. The weather changes, we've got the rains, we've got the scorpion, we've got the flood that takes place in the Torah. God is destroying his world through water. But there's a deeper hidden message in this month that comes from the Kabbalah. There's a saying in Kabbalah that says, this versus that. Anytime we find there is a potential for disaster, there's also a potential for something incredible to happen. In other words, if there's a potential for a downfall, there also has to be a commensurate potential for success. The potential for impurity has to be balanced by the same measure of the ability to find purity. As great as the potential is one way, it has to be equally great the other way. <clears throat> as we know, we have a saying, the bigger the Yetzer Hara, the bigger the Yetzer Hatov. That when you meet a tzaddik, somebody who has completely evolved themselves and actualized themselves into a true servant of God, into a master, a Baal Mido, a master of their character, a master, if you like, of these four elements within them, okay? It's not because they have not struggled. Rather, we say that the greater the Yetzir Hatov, the greater the ability to reach greatness, the more the Yetzir Hara will come back with that power, with that intensity. <laughs> so... You know, the kid who's a troublemaker in school may go on to become a trailblazer when he gets older. Or, you know, very often they joke that the kid who was a troublemaker in yeshiva becomes the very successful businessman who ends up supporting the yeshiva, even though he couldn't sit still in class all through his, you know, school years. So the idea of this month is if this month is prone for bitterness, it can also teach us about what true greatness is. So let's talk about this water element because it's very fascinating and it begins our discussion on one part of the element that we contain as human beings as a reflection of what the world itself is made of, which is water, which of course, without water, the life-giving forces of water the fact that a human being is, is physically made up of, I think, 90% water. Um, water is a very interesting and amazing element. But again, water has two potential extremes. Rain can bring blessing, but if it rains too much, and if it rains in the wrong places, it can bring disaster, devastation. 
Too much rain can be destructive. When we water a plant, if we water it too much, we destroy it. If we don't give it enough water, we also destroy it. So finding the right balance of water is a blessing. It's something that we as human beings have to figure out, and we're going to talk more about that. But let's talk about water is connected to life, and water corresponds to lust. Water corresponds to pleasure. Oh, I got your attention now. Okay. Water corresponds to lust. Because water, if it isn't contained in a vessel, it just overflows, right? Pleasure. No boundaries, right? Pleasures that can turn into addictions, that become destructive, that are no longer under the realm of our mastery, right? So water corresponds to this idea of running after forbidden pleasure or lust, or that's its negative, or this lust can open channels to emotional connections of love, which is the positive aspect of using lust in the proper way i was asking my husband i when i was um, learning this i was thinking about a gemara that maybe some of you have heard about and i just read it over quickly this morning but basically in talmudic times it says that there was a time when the sages of israel were asking god to get rid of the yetzer hara they wanted god to get rid of the yetzer hara for idol worship now, it's hard for us to understand, but the Yetzer Hara for idol worship was the most strongest and difficult Yetzer Hara to overcome in the days when we actually had a temple, when there were miracles, when God was very, very tangible. Again, Zel Umad said, there always has to be a contrary force that is as powerful as the one that exists on the positive always has to be there for the negatives. So idol worship and the immorality that went along with the idol worship of the day was the pole that pulled people away from God and from the very tangible and open manifestation of God that we had during the first temple for sure. And even all the way up to second temple times when we enjoyed prophets and people who had uh, a very clear connection with God and his messages. However, um, these same rabbis that asked for the Yetzirah for uh, Avodah to disappear, then went on to ask for the Yetzirah for lust and sexual activity to disappear. And what happened is God, so to speak, went along with them. He got rid of this Yetzirah and then it says they went out to look for eggs, you know, in the marketplace, and there were no eggs because chickens hadn't hatched any eggs. In other words, if you take away the desire for sexual appetite, if you take away that Yetzir Hara, so to speak, well, the world can't go on. So again, this is a Yetzir Hara that can be used for good or for bad. It's not even a Yetzir Hara. Lust can be something positive. And I'll give you an example. You know, a married couple goes to a rabbi. They've been married for 40 years. And they come to the rabbi and they say, you know, we're just not in love anymore. What are we supposed to do? So the rabbi recognizes that it's not that they're not in love anymore. The problem is, is they're not in lust anymore, right? And this is a very important force. You know, this is the glue, the intimacy, 
that a couple needs in order to to fuel that love and to keep it alive. So the you know the idea here is that lust is good when it's channeled in the right way. Okay, so the question again with lust is it to unlock love or is it being used for in in some forbidden way? Now interestingly, we only have a few minutes but I started late. This inner lust, this passion is the same place the Zohar tells us where spiritual joy comes from. The same point of where lust comes from, this powerful, passionate place in a human being is the same place where spiritual pleasure and enjoyment is derived from. And studying Torah actually is an antidote for forbidden lusts, right? God says, I created the Yetzirah and I created its antidote. And the antidote is studying Torah. So when a person is overwhelmed, let's say a young man in his teens is overwhelmed with sexual feelings or, you know, the powerful feelings of his body. One of the ways that he can quiet that is by feeding himself the Torah, which goes to the same place, so to speak, which is hard for us to understand the spiritual joy of learning, of wisdom, of connecting to Hashem's mind, so to speak, which is what the Torah is, right? It's the revealed part of Hashem's mind that he gave to humanity, to human beings, the instruction booklet for mankind to be able to navigate this world. So the Zohar links sexual desire to the desire for spirituality. So water can be channeled for good or for bad. Water can be channeled for life, for beauty, for growth, for connection. Or water can be damaging, can destroy, as God used it to destroy the world and restart it with Noah and his family. Now, listen to this, ladies. This is something that I never heard before. i got to be quicker because I want to get through this on this month. So there's an idea that the generation of the flood was supposed to receive the Torah. It wasn't supposed to be given to the Jewish people a few generations later at Mount Sinai. But had that generation risen to where it could have risen, God was prepared to give them the Torah. But what happened is they got addicted to forbidden lusts and they got caught up in it. And instead of giving them the Torah, which is... um, which is compared to water, right? Torah is always compared to water. That the same way we cannot live without water. That water is life-giving. So too, we cannot live without Torah. Jews without Torah is like a fish out of water. It is certain death, not only physically in terms of our extinction, in terms of assimilation, in terms of us leaving the fold, But spiritually speaking, in terms of our makeup, if we don't get enough water, Torah, spiritual wisdom, nutrition for the soul, we're gasping 
We're gasping for life. And this is how we have to understand how important it is. It's a tree of life for those who grasp it, who hold on tight, who recognize that without it, there is no life. There is no real connection, real life. And as Jews, again, we know that without the connection to Torah, when Mark Twain asked in his famous uh, writings about the Jewish people, how have we survived the Babylonians, the Persians, the exiles, the oppressions? And he asked at the end of that very inspiring speech, what is the secret of their immortality? Well, it's not a hard answer. It's clear. The secret of our immortality is how intensely and deeply we grasp onto our Torah, which is our life force, which is our water. And so because this generation did not reach its potential and didn't receive the Torah, instead of giving them the Torah, God unleashes the flood of water on them. You could have received the Torah, which is compared to water, but instead God says, so to speak, I have to destroy you with water. Mita connected mita, measure for measure. So the story of the flood is the story of two extremes of water where it could have turned out to be a beautiful story, but instead human beings succumb to their lowest and basest selves, right? If you look in the Meforshim, it says that sexual immorality was permeated that generation to the degree that human beings were being intimate with the animal world, right? I don't know how far we are from that today. You know, soon people are going to say, I love my dog. You know, don't tell me who to love. Don't tell me who to marry. You know, my daughter just bought some wrapping paper for, for my niece's upcoming God willing wedding. And my husband was noticing that all over the wrapping paper, it says Mr. And it has the word Mrs. But it has Mr. and Mr. together, like in terms of the design of the wrapping paper. And Mrs. is only there like every so often, but not connected to the word and. It's really strange. Anyway, I don't know if it's a, you know, if we're reading too deeply into this. But the point is, is. We've seen it before in the times of Noah, everything went. It says that because everything begins with man, the animals themselves were confused and they were mating with animals from different species, from different types. And the world was chaotic because when human beings go awry, we affect everything in our wake. We've seen this with the coronavirus, right? When we stopped being involved in the world, all of a sudden the skies cleared up. All of a sudden the ecology started to aright itself. So human beings have this tremendous power to create and to destroy. We're made in the image of God. Okay, I know it's late. I really want to just finish this. For those of you who have to leave, I won't be insulted. It'll be on the I on the um, on the um, podcast if you want to listen to the rest of it. But I just want to finish it because it is Chodesh Cheshvan today and tomorrow. So, so within the month of Cheshvan, we look behind us. 
We hopefully, in the month of Tishrei, took on a lot of good plans from Yanta. For many of us, we, you know, we felt elevated. We had moments maybe in our davening, maybe in our self-introspection, maybe in the learning that we've been doing together, where we sort of saw vistas of how much better I could be, how much more careful I could be. Maybe we took on some small mitzvah just to remind ourselves. You know, I, I, I just want to tell you personally, I mean, you know, when Dina Schoonmaker in her classes on Chuva talks about taking something on, she says it has to be something so small and so doable. So I took on kissing the mezuzah once a day. Okay, and that's not easy. I actually put a sign on the mezuzah when I first started that said kiss the mezuzah, which my children made fun of <laughs> every time they went in and out of the house, you know, like, that's so weird, mom. Um, but I'm trying once a day to kiss a mezuzah anywhere in the house, outside of the house, somebody else's mezuzah, and sort of say in my mind, thank you, Hashem. Okay, does it seem like a big, huge thing? Well, it is. It's huge. And you say, yeah, so what difference does that make? Is that going to make you speak less Lashon Hara? Is that going to make you be nicer to your husband when you're in a bad mood? You know, like big deal. So what? But that's the idea of taking something. And it's not too late, ladies, to take on some Kabbalah Shalkayama, some small, tiny little thing that takes you back to the days of awe, that takes you back to the work that you did in Elul, that takes you back to that connection with Hashem that says, you can grow higher. You can do better. Just take one little thing that keeps you going towards that. And it has to be doable. It has to be, you know, God says, if you open your heart to the size of a needle, the prick of a needle, I will open it to the size of a ballroom. And one of these uh, analogies that Dina Schoonmaker gives is, you know, when you take a needle and you pierce your ear all the way through to the other side, it's just a tiny little piercing. It seems like nothing. And yet it goes through to the other side. And generally speaking, that hole never closes up. It's there for life as long as you continue to put something in it, right? That tiny little act. God says, you just make that first move and I will, you know, come to you with a ballroom, something the size of a ballroom. Okay. All right. A little bit off track here, but I can't help myself. Okay. So the struggle about this month is Heshman is going to make us or break us. Because are you going to stick with some of those resolutions that you made? Are you going to keep kissing the mezuzah? Are you going to go mm, when you want to speak Lashon Hara? Are you going to have something that's in place, some strategy to help you become better in that area that's always bugged you about yourself, right? Let alone other people. Are you going to become more self-aware? Are you going to do something in your relationship, not only with other people, but maybe something small to say to God, this is just for you? because I want connection, because I want to do this, even if I'm not doing anything else, I want to create that connection. 
This is the month that makes us or breaks us. Are you going to grab the opportunities or roll back into the same person you were before? The struggle is very real during this month of Cheshvan. Zeh le'umat zeh, the waters of the flood or the waters of blessing. There was a Hasidic rabbi that did a play on the word Mar Cheshvan. He said you can read Mar Chesh as the word Mirachesh Sefasecha. Your lips are still whispering. The word Mirachesh means to whisper, meaning your lips are still whispering the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It didn't, it wasn't so long ago. Make sure you take them with you into this month, which is fraught with the potential for bitterness, for sliding back, for becoming your same old self again. Don't let it happen. Take the blessing of the month before with you. Okay, another thing. So the high holidays are still whispering to us. The last idea here is King Solomon completed the temple in this month. Another positive thing that happened. And the rabbis teach us that the third temple, which we are awaiting, God willing, will be completed in this month. So there's lots of positive potential in this month that we need to tap into. Okay, back to the tribe that goes with this month. The tribe is Menashe. And the name Menashe means to forget. When Yosef names his son Menashe, he's saying that he forgot his pain, his pain of being uh, exiled from his father for 22 years, his pain of being ripped apart from his brothers, his pain of having to lead an Egyptian life externally, but live as a Jew, and he forgot his pain. So we're told here that this alludes to this month because we have a choice. We can forget everything that happened in Tishrei or like Yosef who called his son Menashe to say, I didn't forget. One of the things that I didn't forget is who I was even when I was in Egypt. I stayed true to myself. So the, the name Menashe is saying, are you going to stay true to your promises, to who you can be, to who you became in those heady months of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when Hashem was in the field, when Hashem was judging us, when Hashem was so close, when he was taking us by the hand and saying, let's do a makeover, right? I can purify you completely. You can have a completely new beginning and a new start. Menashe. <coughs> The name Menashe are the same letters as the word Neshama, meaning soul. And it's telling us again, stick to your real identity. Don't go back to your counterfeit um, facade, the layers that cover over who you are and who you can really be. Again, the letter of the month is the letter Nun. Okay, and the letter Nun also um, represents two possible extremes. In the, in the prayer Ashrei that we say three times a day, Ashrei Yoshve Vesecha, for those of you who know it in the Siddur, there is no Pasuk, it goes through the whole alphabet, but the letter Nun, the Pasuk beginning with the letter Nun is missing because the letter Nun always connotes Nifila, which means falling, okay? 
But there's two types of falling. There's falling, falling down to the 50th level of impurity, right? You were very high in Tishrei and you allow yourself in Heshvan to fall down. You can drop down to the basement. Or we also have the idea of the number 50 representing the 50 levels of purity, right? The 49 levels that the Jewish people climbed when they left Egypt up to the 49th level, the 50th was only reached by Moshe Rabbeinu, right? But this idea of climbing. So again, this is the make it or break it month. The zodiac sign is the scorpion. The scorpion has a hidden message in it. The gematria, the numerology of the word akrav, scorpion, equals two words. It equals 372, which equal the two words Mashiach and David. Okay, we know that the Mashiach comes through David. Now, just the last idea here, something interesting. It says that the Talmud says there are three things that have something in common. The first is Hashavah Saveda, when you find a lost object. It's something that just happens. You don't go out saying, today I want to go out and find a lost object and do the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, right? You're walking down the street, you unfortunately see a lost object, and if you're a God-fearing Jew, you say, oh my goodness, now it's up to me to find the owner, right? I found a gold bracelet, I found a gold necklace. <laughs> Actually, in the Jewish magazine that comes out every, every month, the link on the back pages, there's a whole listing of people who have found lost objects and want to return them to their owners. So there's descriptions of different items and phone numbers. And this is a big mitzvah. But the point is, is you don't go out expecting to do that mitzvah. It's something that just happens. The second thing the Talmud says just happens is Mashiach, right? Mashiach could come any day, right? Yeshua Sashem Keherifayim. Uh, God's salvation comes in the blink of an eye. It's not something, you know, the Chafetz Chaim had a suitcase packed. He was, so to speak, ready for Mashiach. But it's something that's just going to happen at the moment that it happens. And the last thing it says is the scorpion. The scorpion's bite, okay? The scorpion is not something that, you know, you see on a daily basis. It's just something that appears that you look, you know, when you see it, you run away from it. Um, <clears throat> you stumble upon it. The scorpion is the symbol of Mashiach, that it's going to happen. And just like when you see a scorpion, you want to run away from it. We don't know really what Mashiach is going to be like, you know, whether we're going to be afraid, whether it's going to be wonderful from the very beginning. Maybe we're going to run away from it. But everything about this month, we're told, is hinting to the incredible potential in this month. We have the ability to reach the greatest holiness, or we have the ability to forget everything that we gained from the high holidays. So my blessing to all of us is that we take the inspiration from the month that just preceded us, the month of Tishrei. And as women, we recognize that Rosh Chodesh is a special day that was given by God to the Jewish women, right? It's a yantav almost for us because of the fact that when all of the men were running after the golden calf and all of the men 
for giving their jewelry to build this golden calf. And as much as women love their jewelry, we would have done it had it been the right thing. We did not get involved. We did not participate. And God awarded us with this special day of Rosh Chodesh, the ability to renew ourselves, the ability to take what we learned in the last month, transform the potential of bitterness of this month into a beautiful wellspring of water. So ladies, do something nice for yourself today, okay? Call an old friend, buy yourself something, go out for lunch, tell your husband or your boyfriend to take you out for lunch. But celebrate your womanhood and celebrate your tremendous potential and your ability to change things in your little world, your Olam Katan, and in the world at large. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful Yantiv, a wonderful Chodesh, and a wonderful week. Good Shabbos. And Mir Hashem, we should meet next week and begin our four elements of an empowered life actually based on this book. It's available. Those of you who are interested, you can email me. And I, I believe it's in Miriam's bookstore and other places in Toronto. And for sure on Amazon. The Four Elements of an Empowered Life by Rabbi Shlomo Buxbaum. Okay, thank you for listening. And thank you for getting me started again. Because if I tell you how much I, how the Yetzirah did not want me to start up again. <coughs> Thank you for being here to help me do it. Take care.